Look, the world's problems are getting more and more complex. They require multiple disciplines to be able to solve. When we're dealing with a problem like climate change, or even think about building medical devices, it's, it's, we can't solve that problem in isolation. It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Barry Ross, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode discusses a new approach on how engineers are taught about sustainability by being exposed to the liberal arts. Our guest, Alexis Abramson, Dean of Dartmouth's Thayer School of Engineering. Alexis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am looking forward to uh, this podcast, Alexis. I feel like I'm going to start grilling you, and I apologize beforehand. <laughs> uh, I just hope you're a good sport, and I know you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I see a lot of impressive CVs. I see a lot of impressive uh, background in education. And I usually ask, you know, how someone ended up where they are. I I do have to ask you, would anyone get a PhD in one discipline? It's just totally interesting <laughs> to me. So so what is about mechanical engineering that drove you to get your PhD in the same discipline? Yeah, well, I would say really intellectual curiosity or general curiosity about the way the world works was a real driver for me from a young age. Uh, I grew up in a family with parents that had no engineering inclinations at all. And I think they'll forgive me for saying that. Uh, so, but somebody in the house had to figure out how to sort of fix the things that broke uh, and address the, the problems pertaining to uh, how things work in the house. And so that became me over time, of course. Uh, I had this inclination to want to understand how things worked and was good at math and science. And so there really was no question that I would become an engineer of some kind. Uh, went off to Tufts University, studied mechanical engineering. I think mechanical engineering in particular drew me in for two reasons. The first that it's really the most broad of all engineering disciplines. Interesting. Um, if you look at sort of historically how mechanical engineering has evolved, uh, it's really sort of broken up into sort of two different areas, sort of the solid side and the fluid side. The solids are what people think of like robotics or taking things apart and putting them together. Automotive industry, you get a lot of mechanical engineers. Um, and then there's the fluid side, which people used to just study fluids, thermal fluids, fluid science. And mechanical engineering at one point sort of adopted the fluid thermal, the aerospace piece mm. of it all. And going through classes, as one does as an undergraduate, I became really attracted to understanding thermodynamics, heat transfer. And this, this source of energy that's all around us that honestly... Everybody thinks they understand heat, right? We get hot, we get cold, we have heating, we have cooling. You don't understand heat, I promise you. Um, and so just became really fascinated with this ubiquitous energy source and, and really just loved the subject of thermodynamics and heat transfer. So that's really what drew me to, to mechanical engineering. And then as I went into my graduate work, continued to 
look at heat and energy and integrating that into my studies. So it was the non-physical, I guess you could say, of the discipline that kind of sucks you in. Sure. Yeah, sure, that's interesting. Sure. And so did it seem like it went quickly, starting with your your undergrad to your master's to your, or, or no? Was it just like, yeah, wow, this is uh, a journey? I, in the time, I you know, when you're young in your 20s, I, I don't know that sometimes life is going quickly and sometimes it's not. Looking back, of course, it seems like a flash, but um but uh, I really appreciated the opportunity I had to actually work as a practicing engineer. So I had some time between my bachelor's and my uh, master's, my graduate work, Got it. where I worked on the big dig in Boston. This wow. is this multi-billion dollar project sure. where we built uh, you know, roadways underground, essentially in the middle of the city. So I had an opportunity to work on pump stations and tunnel ventilation. Holy cow. And, uh, and, and that was a really great experience, but, but drew me back into sort of this curiosity interest that I had and, and really decided to go for graduate work after that. Well aware of the big dig. I've got two brothers who live up in Boston and that 20 year initiative and that's impressive. That's uh, we could spend an whole Great. whole other podcast yeah. just talking about the foibles. Yes. But yes. yeah, I was about to say that's uh, or that's the it. successes too. The accomplishments. <laughs> that's true. Are, no, it's uh, yeah, that's yeah, something big. Yeah. I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, this approach, this concept. Uh, I don't know if it's new, but you and I talked a little bit about it previously, and I think we called it this human-centered approach. So when we talk about it, when you talk about it with your students, what is a human-centered approach to engineering? And, and more importantly, why is it important in solving sustainability issues? Sure. So when I say human-centered engineering, when here at Dartmouth we say human-centered engineering, we really mean two things. So the first piece is about thinking about the humans when we're acting as engineers. So that means we're trying to solve a problem, call it climate change, a sustainability problem facing humanity today. We're really considering the humans on the other end. Um, I think about a partnership that we have with some indigenous people in Greenland who obviously are facing the impact of climate change severely and need to be thinking about alternative sources for their energy, which is largely diesel. And so when we think about addressing that problem, it's not just, oh, let's replace the diesel with some technological solution. It's about really understanding the needs of the humans on the other side, uh, what culturally they're willing to accept in their community, um, how the economics play a role, how their own policies and governance plays a role. It's not just about the technology. So when we talk about human-centered engineering, it's that holistic approach and that we try to bring that into the classroom in the the classes that we're teaching and the problems that we're, the equations that we're trying to solve even. Um, and then also on the research side, as a research university as well, 
we're very focused on the impact piece. So there's great work to be done in fundamental science, don't get me wrong, but we spend a lot of time, a lot of our faculty and staff and students spend time really thinking about the impact while they're doing their research. How could this translate into the real world? And let's make sure our research is the research that will help make that happen as quickly as possible. What are the needs of the humans on the other end as we do this research? So, so that's one piece of the human centered engineering approach. The other one actually has to do with the humans engaged in the classes, in the research, in the problem solving, such that we're meeting the educational needs of all of our students who come from diverse backgrounds, who come from different levels of preparation. How do we help them be the best engineers they can be given those differentiated backgrounds? Um, How do we help our community feel that they can come to work, come to school every day as their true selves. So it's that human-centered engineering of considering the humans that are engaged in the process of learning and doing. It, it seems like, and I, I've been totally wrong before, and I will be in the future, so, so no worries. It seems like this is relatively new, this approach. Is it? I would say so, um, either new or one can think of it as sort of a renaissance approach to engineering, right? Uh, a century or so ago, uh, when we were trying to solve problems facing humanity, you often had philosophers as Ooh. part of the team coming up with solutions, right? Uh, you had scientists that were actually well-trained in a variety of different subjects. And and I think you're right, we, we then kind of have moved a bit more to being more skills focused in higher education. Uh, So in our country, we do ensure at most universities that students get a bit of a broad education, but the liberal arts piece that is really important to human centeredness has been lost in STEM disciplines to some extent. So we're kind of bringing it back. Right. And that's a really good segue. You should have your own podcast because this is something else we talked about a little bit. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of go back and forth because again, you know, I'm as old as dirt. And when I went to grad school, you know, liberal arts, it was a nice to have. And I felt like for whatever reason, Either you're good quantitatively, you're good at math, you're good at STEM, and you were pushed towards this this career path at a very young age where I grew up. Uh, But in our discussions, you know, you and I talked about, you know, look, integrating liberal arts into programs, especially engineering, is supremely, you know, important. Why is that? Why is that so? Why do you feel that way? Yeah, it it really is. Look, the world's problems are getting more and more complex. They require multiple disciplines to be able to solve. I like to boil it down, and I don't mean to exclude any other disciplines, but to say usually it's a technology plus economics plus policy question. And certainly all of that can touch on a variety of different disciplines from business to anthropology, even to, to when we think of form and function to studio art, right? So all of those disciplines are really important. So when we're dealing with a problem like climate change, or even think about building medical devices, it's it's we can't solve that problem in isolation. And you know, there are problems out there that probably need 
sort of the engineers that are trained with their head down to kind of solve equation after equation, sort of what you see in movies of these scientists and engineers and mathematicians at the blackboard, right. you know, for hours <laughs> on end solving those problems, right? So, um, so you know, those are the people, maybe those are the people that are going to get us to Mars, right? Because we need their head down kind of solving those important equations. But really, at the end of the day, today's problems are just more complex, even something as simple as a thermometer that we're using to take temperatures when people are sick, right? Now they're data enabled. Now they help us view populations of people and where flu outbreaks might be. So the world is becoming more complex. Hopefully that's helping us as well integrate some of those complexities into the solutions so that we can react quicker, we can address more issues better and and we can address more issues for more people and 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 help them live better lives for the next question i, I think uh, alexis we talked a little bit about you know hey you know, you know this human-centered approach and how it may be different may not be different than you know just having engineers fulfill course requirements outside the di discipline because Again, you know, my context is when I was in school and I got my syllabus or whatever for the next semester, I was like, oh, I've got to take classes in sociology or psychology. And I was like, OK, I'm just going to check that box. You know, I mean, how is this important? Like you talked about organizational behavior. You know, why is this so important? So a, a, a couple different reasons. I mean, one which I touched on is that as you're an engineer trying to solve a problem, you really need to take those other pieces into account, right? So um, we have a, a, a professor here who teaches a design thinking course, and he likes to give the example of, let's say you're an engineer and you're hired to design a bridge. And all you did was sit down and did the equations to design right. a bridge and the structural analysis and all that. But you never ask the question, why do you need the bridge? And, wow. and maybe the answer is because I need to get a message from the island to the mainland. Right. And maybe there's other solutions out there. And so the building of these skills, be it psychology and understanding human psychology, understanding costs and economics, it's not just a price tag, but it's understanding where that money is coming from, how... Uh, the economics of a particular country work that will influence whether or not you can build that right. bridge, how the policy works. So, so it's hard to understand sort of those pieces without kind of being immersed in those different subjects, right? So you're, and we're leaving it up to the students in large part to make some of these decisions around I, oh, I have an interest in psychology or I have an interest in economics. And that's great because they'll follow some of those other passions that they have. But it's really important to have those classes and be immersed in, in those subjects in order to gain that perspective you need as an engineer who's really going to solve problems. And I'll, I'll give you one other reason, though. And, and, yeah, and this, this is um, a one that I think is really important, although I will admit some of the research is still out on this. Um, and that's the, the benefit of exercising different parts of your brain. And so we all know, we talk about left brain and right brain and, and, and 
if you only exercise one part of that brain or you largely exercise one part of the brain, just like if you only exercised one leg instead of the <laughs> other one, right? Like that, there's that's a problem, yeah. right? And so by actually taking classes in these other subject matters where you're really exercising those other parts of your brain, you're building connections across the brain so that you're well conditioned, you're trained essentially as an engineer to think about those other complexities, right, entering into the problem. And so I would argue if you're not given that opportunity to do that as an undergraduate, you're just not going to be as equipped to be able to do that in the real world. So, so let's bring this back a little bit to your education right? And your career path. I mean, did you think about these things, this approach, what we're talking about now when you were an undergrad and then master's or, or it was just like, just, just dawned on you, not dawned on you, but you know what I'm asking, right? It was just this something that just came up. So I, I think because I went to a large public high school and I had an interest in a lot of subjects, granted math and science were my favorite um, I just had this intellectual curiosity and the thought of going to an undergraduate institution where I was just going to dive into the math and science, I felt like I'd really have been missing out on something. So I chose to go to Tufts University, right, which is that integration of liberal arts and engineering and really took advantage of it as much as possible. I remember in my history of women class, I wrote a paper on how the history of working women in the 20th century was like an undamped oscillator. So, you know, I really I tried it. very I hard love it. I love it. to bring it all together and, um, and have really tried to do that throughout my career as well. That's a whole, whole other, other podcast. I think that's a, that's yeah. a did you, did you get a good grade on that paper? I, I think I got an A minus. I was pretty upset about that. <laughs> not quite the A plus you're expecting. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. History was not my strong suit. So I, you know, I'll take it. I think that's great. I think that's, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the, the course that you teach. So the seminar is called Energy Sustainability Technologies and Impact. And this is where, in this course, students evaluate the trade-offs, uncertainties of energy systems. What are those trade-offs? Yes. Yeah, so as we all know, climate change is a daunting challenge facing humanity. Right. Um, we emit about globally about 50 gigatons of carbon equivalent emissions each year uh, across a variety of different sectors, right, and the things that we make that we use every day and the electricity we use to plug in our devices and um, the food that we grow and the transportation we use and uh, in buildings, which I study, right, to keep us hot and cold as needed. Um, and, and that energy comes from a variety of different sources, much of it fossil fuel based at the moment, um, with a small amount coming from nuclear and hydro and renewables and and, and so we, interestingly, we know we need to cut back on those carbon emitting energy sources. Uh, and different from other problems facing humanity, we actually know how to do this. We, we, Interesting. we, we, we could, and if you really think about it, we could just stop using energy tomorrow and 
plant, go back to planting our own gardens <laughs> wow. and and growing our own food and not using right. cell phones and, and and walking everywhere. We we could do that, but obviously we're choosing as a as a global society not to do that. And so as a result, we have to make decisions. There are trade-offs in reducing our energy use and finding other energy sources um, to be able to get us to essentially zero emissions. And so it's a very messy problem. Um, no doubt. It's technology, it's economics, it's policy again. Uh, it's messy. Uh, the example, one of the examples is, well, well, a lot of the students walk into the class saying, why don't we just do more solar, right? We could put solar panels all over the place. Huh, that's an interesting idea. Okay, well, whose land are we going to put it on? There aren't enough rooftops. Right. Oh, and the sun doesn't shine all the time. And uh, so how do we deal with it at night? And then what about the grid? How do you tie into the grid? Or we need more transmissions lines. Who's going to let me build those transmission lines in their backyards, right? So these are very complex problems. And so it's always this trade-off between uh, the technological solution that's right, the economics of it all, and then the policy and the human behavior piece. But so many great questions, though. I mean, it's just like you can go down that rabbit hole. And I think that those questions that I think students have to ask themselves in engineering gets back to what you were just talking about, getting the big picture, the critical thinking, not just being face down, right, in some program. And I think that's 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 hugely important. It's so, it's so important. You know, in the same class, you know, you ask your students to write about different approaches that they could take to avoid, you know, future climate situations, issues, disasters. What are those approaches? Is it asking the same questions and doing something about it? It's so what we tend to do is focus on the problem and understand the complexities of the problem and then use those critical thinking skills to really come up with possible solutions um, and really have the students, we have the students really kind of pose arguments for change. So um, they get to practice both oral, orally and writing, right? What some of those arguments might be, they consider the pros and cons. So for example, we spend a week talking, talking about nuclear energy, right? So there, the pros of nuclear energy are great. It's pretty much zero emissions. It takes some emissions to build a nuclear plant, but once it's operating, it's zero emissions and you get energy out of it 24 seven. So none of this intermittency you get out of solar. But the cons are that there are safety concerns. There's nuclear waste disposal. Um, what's interesting about the safety concerns piece, because this comes up in class a lot, is everybody thinks nuclear is awful, awful because you hear about Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima. And, but really, when you do the analysis, very few people have died as a result of nuclear, and many more people have died and gotten seriously ill as, as a result of burning fossil fuels. So there's also that psychology piece, right. in there, that human piece uh, that you have to take into consideration. So we spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, how do we look at the technology, economics, and policy, and how do we optimize, find an optimal solution for this very complex problem? I think that's great. I mean, I, I wonder, and maybe this is an easy answer, do you ever get students who have these really strong but diverse views 
who are like show up in class day one, like, no, nuclear energy is the way to go as opposed to, no, it's wind or it's hydro. Do you, do you get that? Or is it more like young craftable minds? Just, uh, right? <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe a little bit of both, okay. right? I, I think I, I love the fact that students often do walk into class and they think they have the solution, right? right. And, and and the hope and the optimism and the enthusiasm, we need that, right? And it, it gives me hope in our future because these students are really eager to help find the problem. And they say, but, but, you know, what if we could just put up more wind turbines? Like I come from Iowa, there's plenty of space in Iowa, right? So they come in and then we spent time talking about why it's complex and and kind of bring the reality a bit more into it. And so they realized that whatever argument they walked in with maybe wasn't sophisticated enough. And so they, they walk out with a much more sophisticated appreciation for the complexity and a, more of an understanding of how to build um, a solution and and therefore an argument for that solution. But but I love that example. Someone coming from Iowa, realizing there's not issues really with installing or laying something out like, you know, because they had the land as opposed to would that same platform be available and useful in New York City? You know, I don't know. That's uh, exactly that's great. You, you know, one that comes up a lot, yeah. students walk in and say, we got to get rid of all the subsidies for oil and gas for fossil fuel, get rid of all the subsidies. And so one of the things I say, I then ask them is, okay, it's winter time right now. And many, everybody in the northern part of our country, at least, needs heat. And many of them cannot afford the high cost, especially now, of heating their homes. So we subsidize that and we make sure that they don't have to pay the full cost. Should we stop doing that? And then, of course, the whole class says, no, 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 we should continue <laughs> to do right. that. And I say, well, where is that heat coming from? Well, it's coming from burning fossil fuels in large part. So which, what are we going to do right. here? Right. And so they see that complexity and they realize sort of the, the you know, the conflict there uh, of just coming right out with that statement. And is that one of the parts, I mean, I would think for me, if I was smart enough to be a teacher, to have that moment in front of the students where you're offering this complexity, right? You're, you're letting them see something bigger than what this preconceived motion is. Is that something that you enjoy or is it just like you're used oh, to it? That's my favorite part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is my favorite part is those aha moments that they have. And when you see the light bulb go on. Yeah. I, lo I love being in those situations with them when they when they have that discovery moment. That makes me happy. So so let's talk a little bit about more than, you know, with all these students that you see coming through those doors. You know, what is the one skill that you see your engineering students lacking right now? You just got to point your finger at it and say, okay, that's an issue. So in general, I would say, and I'll, I'll talk about um, the STEM trained students, the engineering students, right? Uh, in general, I would say more and better communication skills, the ability to work on teams, which unfortunately during COVID, mm. the practicing that kind of went away. Um, really appreciating the real world and bringing that into the classroom. Now, of course, at, at Dartmouth, right, we really do try to bring the real world into the classroom. Um, 
And I think other engineering schools are looking to do that more and more. Uh, so you have that more holistic approach to engineering we talked about earlier. But I, I think building that overall for STEM trained uh, majors is really important. Um, I, I would say, though, for all of our students, not to not just STEM students, it's uh, learning how to discuss and debate these issues and sort of work and live with people of different opinions. Um, I, I think about my time I was at Department of Energy for a couple of years and my time there with other scientists and engineers and policymakers really discussing and debating issues like whether or not we should invest in cold climate heat pumps or use natural gas as a bridge to renewables, things, and, and having these wonderful discussions and debates about these issues. And, and at the end of it, we could go out for a beer and everybody was happy, even if we disagreed. And right. I think some of that has been lost. I blame COVID to some extent for that. I think universities have to do a better job training students to work in environments like that. And, and I hope we see um, better ways to integrate those different views and opinions uh, into the learning process. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're just hitting on the nail on the head in terms of like having the communicate, not just the communication skills, but also the ability to collaborate and look at issues, concerns from someone else's point of view and still have that beer, right? At right, the end of the right, conversation, exactly. because Exactly. I can tell you in my day-to-day and uh, the conversations I have, I'm like, wow, I am not having a beer with that person ever again. But, but you have to, right? And you have, just to move that project or goal forward. So, you know, I, I appreciate what you just said. I just, I feel like it's uh, just so important. Um, but let's talk about a little bit about uh, one of your other superpowers, uh, you know, moving outside of, uh, you know, being the superhero that you are in education and dean and, you know, educating you know, your students in engineering, let's talk about maybe your private enterprise life. Uh, so you were a co-founder of a company called Edifice Analytics. And I'll ask, you know, you one of my favorite questions I ask most of my uh, guests on the show, you know, with this company, Edifice, you know, what problems do you solve for your customers? I mean, what do you do? Sure. Well, Edifice Analytics was born out of sort of some time I spent at the Department of Energy in the Building Technologies Office trying to identify where some of the low-hanging fruit opportunities might be, where we could solve some real critical problems to reduce energy consumption in buildings. And what I realized, uh, we had sort of this rich data set of electricity usage, right? Everybody has electricity meters on their buildings that gets that electricity data gets reported to the utility and you pay your bill. But we never really use that data for much of anything else. Interesting. And so uh, partnering with Roger French at Case Western Reserve, uh, who is an expert in data analytics, and myself bringing to the table sort of the expert on building science, um, we got together and said, we think we could use that electricity data and really do a a virtual energy audit without setting foot in the building, be able to disaggregate. So you're getting just the whole building data, just the whole building electricity data, and be able to tell what's the refrigeration load, what's the heating wow. load, the cooling load, the plug load, the lighting load. And, and then, gosh, this is really high, or this is really good. Or if you were to 
find a way to save 10% or 20% energy in your lighting, this is how much money you should you would save and therefore maybe focus on it. So it's these virtual energy audits. Uh, we had a, a partnership for a little while with uh, Starbucks. And so they used Exciting. Some That's great. our stuff to really look at what the refrigeration loads were and know which stores maybe had inefficient ice makers in it. So um, which has been uh, which was great to help them find that out again without doing any fancy metering of their ice makers themselves. And so it's, it seems like it's uh, buildings, construction, maybe public utilities would be the end, the vertical, I guess, the end customer for this. Am I Exactly that. And also there are a lot of companies out there called ESCOs, energy service companies that are helping companies manage their buildings smarter better to be more energy efficient. So be able to integrate with them and the work that they do. Um, largely, we focus on the small to medium sized buildings. So if you think about it, a large office building, the Empire State Building, which is was renovated right. years ago, right? Like, they're probably okay. They've got a big building management system in it, right? It, they're pretty smart buildings. They know how to use their energy. They can monitor very specific things. But 90 to 95% of the buildings in the U.S. are small to medium-sized buildings, so less than 200,000 square feet. And those buildings usually don't have any intelligence in them. Maybe the best might be a few uh, smart thermostats, if you will. So, so really, this allows you to have a lot more insight to your building's operation when you don't have the control systems and the equipment, the metering in the building to find it any other way. I love it. I just... Uh... It's funny because here in the city, you know, each building is rated, right, for efficiency use, right. like that A, B, C, D. And, you know, the one thing I do notice when I walk around my neighborhood is like the rating of a building. And I do like one of these, like turn up my nose at anything that's less than, <laughs> you know, a B or a C. And my wife reminds me, she's like, oh, look, you know, you're so woke or whatever. But it's something now <laughs> that you look at these buildings, these brownstones, which have been around for, you know, hundreds of years practically. And I'm exaggerating, but... And that's got to be really hard to solve for when you're talking about these, you know, these, I don't know, built in like 1783 or something, it, right? It is. Well, I sit here in my office at Dartmouth as my steam radiators are clanking in the background. So, <laughs> I know. Uh, they're great. not very smart radiators, I will admit. But so <laughs> there are great solutions out there. A lot of different startup companies out there trying to address the, these exact problems. For what it's worth, you're, you're handling the radiator in the background like a rock star. <laughs> you're like, whatever, it's fine. We continue on. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah. let, let's change that, that tracks a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of proud of in the show, and I know you do work with, is you know we've done a lot of content, a lot of interviews on STEM-related, um, you know, uh, issues. And for us, it's always been about like making sure. With a lot of our guests, when we interview them and they've got a STEM background about, you know, how, where, how people are being educated, get, you know, get children at a younger age. And so, you know, from what you do and, you know, what is, you know, I'm trying to be graceful here. What is your work with STEM X, right? What, is, what does it mean to you? You know, how are you involved? You know, what is STEM to you? 
Yeah. So as you alluded to, Barry, right, we need more STEM trained people, right? Practically everything we're using in daily life and that we touch in healthcare and energy and other fields, right, have some kind of technology, engineering, science, math integrated into them. And I'm not saying everybody has to study STEM for their major as an undergraduate or go to graduate school, but more exposure to more learning about uh, what it means, uh, the, what those fields mean, and because they touch so many different areas. Um, and, and we really want to make sure that everyone with an interest in STEM uh, has the opportunity to pursue a career in or, 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 or take a class on a STEM topic, that they're, they'll be given a chance to do that. So uh, we have an initiative here at Dartmouth called STEMX, and that is a $100 million initiative that got wow. announced recently um, to really focus more efforts on uh, diversity in STEM at our college um, to really make sure that we're pe- bringing in people of different backgrounds um, that have different preparation levels uh, and that are coming in with an interest in STEM and that we can provide a pathway for them uh, in order to be able to study that topic. And it's just so critical, again, that we have more of these STEM trained people in one way or another uh, in our society following different careers. uh, And it's the university's responsibility to help make that happen. So it's so great. It's just I mean, do you, do you feel like in the course of your career and what you've done, do you think STEM accessibility has gotten better? Has it improved? Do you think most people now who want it do have access to STEM-based learning or, or no? Is it is it just because of what you do, you see it more, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think we still have a long way to go. Um, I, I really see this as... as sort of three categories of problems, the financial, Mm. the inclusion, and the curriculum pieces. So on the financial side, it's making sure that our students have access to financial aid. And I do think we have gotten better uh, over time. You can look at the data. We are able to provide through the federal government, through individual uh, institutions, from community colleges, through four-year universities, we are able to provide more financial aid to students. Now, the cost of education has also gone up, so Mm. there's uh, some complexities there. Um, But that has improved. I think where we're struggling is more on the inclusion and the curriculum side. I I think the inclusion piece has been around since I was an undergraduate, right? Being part of Society of Women Engineers, sort of affinity groups. Um, Now many universities have in place additional support and tutoring sort of programs so that students that maybe didn't have calculus in high school can get additional tutoring and additional uh, support to help them get through courses. We have a summer program. Many schools have summer programs to bring you in before your your freshman year. So that's great. Um, but, But we could do better to ensure that we're creating a community, a culture, a climate of inclusion at the university level. Um, the toughest piece is the curriculum piece. I think uh, changing curriculum as a whole requires a lot of engagement of faculty and the university community. Uh, but when we think about curriculum so that we're establishing a pathway 
that again, maybe you didn't have physics or calculus, right, at your high school, that we still have a pathway that you can go down and graduate as an engineer, um, that we're thinking about meeting different needs, right, in a 10-week quarter or a 15-week semester, right? Maybe there's a couple weeks that you're struggling, but the rest of the time, you get it, right? You shouldn't fail or feel like you have to drop out of the class as a result? How do we design the curriculum so we can help meet those differing needs? And so we have a bit of a ways to go before I think we can better address those those issues overall. That's so interesting, just because, you know, as you talk and I listen, it's just like, I think about all these things when I was growing up that I just took for granted in terms of like curriculum. Because you started with like geometry, trigonometry, the pre-calc, and then calc. And you're almost like you're pushed along this path. And that's, I think, probably one of the strengths of the school system I went to. I didn't even have to think about it. It was kind of like, here it is. You don't have a choice. Just do it. And I think what you're talking about is just not taking those things for granted and recognizing that in a lot of places, you don't have this curriculum motivation to do that. I think that's pretty powerful. That's right. And and a lot of students that come in with less preparation or who may look different than many of the other students that they're in class with, it's sort of a double whammy. They also then often carry this imposter syndrome with them, right? So that they start thinking maybe they're not as capable. Maybe there's something wrong with them. And that's where that inclusion, the belonging piece is so important to continue to provide them guidance and mentorship along the way. Because we don't want that illusion that they have to get in the way of their success. So you really have to have a support network in that case, it seems like. You know, I'm I'm getting a little sad, Alexis. We're, we're, We're getting close to the time where... Uh, we have to say goodbye to you, which I don't like. I, I may enjoy this conversation more than I, I care to admit. Um, so let me ask you uh, a last question, if I may. It's almost like plan B for you. You know, if you weren't the dean at Dartmouth teaching engineers on sustainability, if you weren't a co-founder of your own company, a lot of what ifs here what would have been option B for you? What else would you have done? Well, I do have to say I've been lucky to have chosen a path in academia because in academia, there is some flexibility, right? I've been able to look at things like tech-based economic development. I spent a couple of years at Department of Energy. I got to do a year sabbatical at a venture capital firm and and be a professor and a researcher. Uh, very stressful, but awesome to have that <laughs> flexibility, I would right. say. Um, so in some ways, I kind of cheated and got to do a lot of different things, as it were. But, um, but I think the kind of wacky thing I would pick Um, And I would seriously think about it if I was able to do it again. I think it would be actually to be an architect. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. It's sort of that 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 confluence of art and engineering, which we've talked a lot about today. Okay. Um, But also with the intersection of energy and sustainability, too. So, uh, you know, and actually we built a house uh, two years ago now. And so I got to help design that house, super energy efficient house. So I kind of had a chance to dabble. Very cool. So, yeah. So let me coin this term, Alexis Abramson Architect. That uh, you, got, you, got, you got the AAA <laughs> yeah. there. That's, uh, nice life. <laughs> yeah, that's about to well. That, was, that would have been my next question. I'm, I'm going to hit you with it anyway. 
10, 15 years from now, still doing the same thing or something different? Yeah, I think higher education is definitely uh, at an inflection point, and I'm looking forward to being really part of our future. Well, I I really have enjoyed having you on the show. I, I, I'm a little concerned. I think, Alexis, one day you may look up and I may be sitting in the front row of your class. Uh, oh, yeah, great. Yeah, I don't We'd know. Love to have you. Yeah, I, I, you say that now. <laughs> but as I sit there in awe of my little pen, uh, you know, I'd be honored to actually uh, sit in your class. I just, uh, joking aside, it's been great having you on the show. I want to thank you for being on the show. We hope to have you back at some point. Thank you, Barry. It's been great talking to you today. Likewise. And uh, for our listeners, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the podcast, especially this one. I definitely did. Uh, but even if you didn't enjoy the podcast or have ideas to make us better, uh, please visit our feed at iTunes to rate, review, or subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. We want your feedback. And that's it for us in another episode of The Big Rethink. Until next time, I'm Barry Ross. Quick note from our sponsor, Intel. Intel vPro continues to raise the bar with enterprise-grade performance, security, manageability, and reliability features for enterprise and managed business of all sizes. It's simple. Intel vPro is built for all businesses.